0: and we're back welcome to Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff if you enjoy the podcast and would like to help me out please tell a friend share it on your social media tell your mum or write a review on apple podcasts or even just send me a postcard to let me know you enjoy it it helps um today we're off to the seaside to talk denim let's go Hi and welcome to another episode of Gumology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. And today I think my guests are in um, the southern part of the UK. We might be talking about the Brighton area, possibly local-ish. Um, would you like to introduce yourself, Kelly and Scott? Hi Nick. Uh, my name's Scott Ogden.
1: Hi Nick, it's Kelly Dawson.
0: And together you are Dawson Denim. Was I right about where you um, where you reside?
2: Yeah, we're actually in Hove. Well, Hove actually, as the there's the pun goes, um, yeah, which is just bordering Brighton. Um, yeah, it's Brighton and Hove, so yeah, essentially, it's the same difference.
0: As I recall, it's a slow, excruciatingly slow bus ride from Brighton. We stayed uh, in a B and B there a few years ago. <laughs>
1: Yes, it can be. <sighs> yeah. Um, to be honest, you're probably quicker walking. And it's quite nice because you can go straight down the sea. Um, and we're sort of 30 seconds up from the, the seafront in a lovely little 18th century muse, the little cobblestones. And yeah, it's lovely here.
0: So as the listeners are no doubt uh, grasping now, this is not going to be an episode about the making of British-made jeans or workwear, it's a tourist guide to uh, British seaside.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
0: As if we need more tourists here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, well, I don't know. <laughs>
2: there's, there's so many tourists here. Brighton is the, the hot spot.
0: I know. Brighton is a, it's a nice place. I've been there a few times. Shall we start at the beginning? Dawson Denim. When did it start? How did it come about?
1: So um, I have a very long career in um, specialising in denim design, manufacturing, production um, and um, garment management. So um, I guess after about 18, 19 years, I'd got a bit bored of working on the high street and working with brands. I'd kind of Gone as far as I could in terms of my career. And I was living in Brighton and commuting to London. And if anybody has done that, it seems like a great idea at the time until you realise that the trains don't really run very regularly and you have to get up at five o'clock in the morning. And if you're working a, a sort of high-end job you can be required to stay at work until 10 p.m which will often mean getting a hotel overnight or trying to get home by midnight and so the opportunity of a redundancy at my last job came up and I came home and said to Scott look you know there's a chance here for me to leave this little rat race that I'm in and we could set something else up and I was kind of bored of Sausage factory design, I mean, if I tell you, I was probably illustrating around a hundred pairs of jeans every season at my last job. We were creating around 50 different wash effects on around 30 different qualities of denim every season. So <laughs> it was quite <laughs> a big, pressureful full job. Um, and... I wasn't really able to sort of go any further in terms of that career. It's glass ceiling. Glass ceiling, yeah. Um, and so I came home and said to Scott, "Look, what shall I? What should we do?" And you said,
2: "Well, um, there was a bit more to it than that. You were very disillusioned with the high street situation, mass manufacturing. You name it. There was a problem with it. Um, you'd been to factories all over the world setting up." Uh, laundries and so on And you saw child labour You saw the lot didn't you
1: Yeah in terms of um, In terms of mass manufacture I've seen the worst I've also seen the best um, But yeah it it was getting to the point Where margin was too important Over design And I was working on products That were being delivered in That looked nothing like the original Um, And I couldn't feel proud of what I was creating anymore.
2: Yeah. When you first started in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was actually manufacturing in the UK?
1: So I would say, yeah, when I first began working on the first buying floor that I was on, um, I would say 80% of the goods that we were buying were coming from the UK. So we were working with people in Birmingham and Lancashire and, you know, um, working with Tilly's, for example or gemini who were fantastic producers of amazing denim products um and it was fun because you could you know hop in a car and get up there and see what you were making and you know everything was a bit more 3d and then literally overnight in the 90s it all just transferred over to china and we have much less control and things become much less interesting um but also, you know, I've ma- I've managed to do amazing things like I lived in Istanbul for a couple of years and worked with laundries out there and makers, which was great fun and a great experience. Um, but when this redundancy option came up, I sort of came home and said, you know, I want to do I want to do something. I want I want to go back to my roots. So I'm a trained pattern cutter and um I know how to make things. And it had been a very long time since I'd been away from a computer and on a sewing machine or on a pattern cutting table actually making. And I said to Scott at the time, um, you know, this is what I want to be doing. I want to be working with my hands and actually physically producing garments in a very slow way, which was at the time, 11 years ago, a kind of groundbreaking notion i think there was only really us and hyatt who were yeah you know,
2: well we it was actually kind of
1: doing it. it
2: we're 11 years old but in reality it was 12 because it took a year for us to think about what to do um, and initially we had a couple of thousand quid to start a business and what you can buy with that is one machine um, a lockstitch machine and That's it. But to make a pair of jeans, you require around about nine specialist machines. Um, So we thought, well, okay, we've got the money for one machine. We haven't got a workshop. We can set this up in the spare room in our house and get a roll of denim, which we could source from one of Kelly's old suppliers that she worked with for God knows how long. Um, And we thought, okay, well, what do we make with this machine? What, What have we got? And we thought about the aprons because Kenny had a collection of old 30s 40s um american aprons dust bowl wear aprons um and we could manufacture those on one machine so it was out of necessity really uh that we'd started knocking up these things and we thought we may sell them to a few rockabillies people on the 50s scene the rocking scene in the uk and abroad um But we didn't see the potential of wholesale and we didn't see the potential of coffee shops um, because 12 years ago, people weren't wearing denim aprons in in coffee shops. Um, So we made it and we went to a trade show the following week because a friend, actually it wasn't a friend at that point, a local guy said he was running a trade show in London.
1: It was, um, thinking about it now, we bumped into Nick Clements, who runs men's magazine at Goodwood one year. And we kind of tapped him on the shoulder and said, we're starting this thing, what do you think? And he said, well, you need to get in touch with our friend Anthony, who lives in Hove. Yeah. He's doing this thing up in London.
2: A trade show for for makers.
1: For makers who are making in Britain. Yeah.
2: It was a British made thing. Uh, It could be whatever it was. There was uh, bicycles, molten bicycles were there and a whole disparate range of things were there. And we had a week to make a garment and to get it photographed and to get it up to London for this trade show. We actually dismantled our front room, our living room, and used that (laughs) as... as the shop furniture we were so
1: unprepared but it was so fun Um,
2: and we did it and it it was a baptism of fire really it was um it was interesting because that's how we met hyatt because they were they were fledgling company in their first literally month as well um but they had about 15 members of staff on and big money and we were the polar opposite but that was cool um so we, we showed these aprons, and I think we had one pair of jeans as well at that point, did we? First no, I think je- that
1: was no. the following.
2: We just had aprons, and then all of a sudden, uh, we had the Ace Hotel and Selfridges coming up to our stand and saying, we need these for our restaurants, can you make X amount? And uh, we just said yes, uh, never th- considering there was a wholesale potential for quantity in these things. I thought I was going to be selling like one or two to a few guys with quiffs into 1954. But no, there was coffee shop potential. So, yeah, that's how we started. And within a year, we got enough money to finance the machines, to source and finance machines, which we have here today. Um, But really, we were it was it was just complete luck. Um, We were number one on the Google search for denim aprons at one point. Which is—it's not the case now. Everyone's doing them, and it's saturated that market. But you know what? We made our money, and that's that. So, we've moved on to the product that we wanted to make, but we couldn't afford to. So, uh,
1: yeah. I think I would say that the um, that everything we set in place with the aprons carried on to every single other product that we now have. So, the whole concept was that yes, we were making. A version of a nineteen thirties workwear apron, but it would be displayed in its original box that you would have bought from a mercantile um, store. It would come with a free repair service. Yeah, you know, which was key.
2: Which was that service book thing. um, Twelve years ago, free repairs—that was just kind of unheard of. And within six months of our business, we got in a lot of the broadsheet UK broadsheet newspapers saying what on earth is this company doing? Why are they doing free repairs for life? You know, that's bad business. Um, Why? So we were a real novelty. And we got a lot of exposure in uh, newspapers uh, on that point. It's now almost a standard thing, standard practice for... The more expensive denim brands to do free repairs but we were yeah we were offering that a long time ago and just seen as a complete novelty um
1: there are a um, lot of rivet and hide are offering like free repairs now and
2: oh a lot of brands know, a lot are of, a
1: lot of retailers are offering it now whereas that would have been you know totally unheard of
2: it was it was a novelty absolute novelty um so that was that was the thing we were doing but um yeah, so that was it. Eleven years ago, we started our business. Uh, the first two years was sourcing the machines, which were a nightmare. <laughs> um, invariably, we went to the to, to the the places to buy them in London and they would be knackered. And we'd spend two years repairing them, uh, trying to find someone that could repair them because all of the guys that were around in the 50s have all passed away. So... Um, just trying to get these things going was a nightmare
1: so what um a lot of our machines come from that sort of great boom era so the 1950s and 1960s and um basically all the guys that worked on these machines don't have things like social media or email addresses or (laughs) so you have to phone somebody and then they'll put you in touch with somebody else who might put you in touch with somebody else and Eventually, we found one guy in London who was, you know, borderline 70s, who actually worked at the Union Special College that they had oh. set up back in the 60s in London. So he sort of gave us a few pointers. And to be honest... You know, we have we have one guy that we work with regularly who comes to sort of service all of our machines and make sure that everything's running nicely. Yeah, we struck gold with him. And he lives locally and he actually, he used to work at Jaeger. Yeah. So he works at the Jaeger factory in London and um, he lives just up the road from us and he comes around and he looks at all the machines and he helps me if we've had a catastrophic incident, which thankfully doesn't happen very often now.
2: Yeah, but that first three years was just,
1: Trial and
2: error. Trial and error. Everything was uh, manufacturing wise because there's really no beginning to end YouTube videos on making a pair of jeans. You know, there might be a 30 uh, second video on making it, but in reality, that's not going to give you enough knowledge to make a pair of jeans. Um, so, particularly 12 years ago, there wasn't anyway. So, uh, yeah, it was trial and error and lots of swearing, lots of wanting to give up at some point
1: I mean we say trial and error I have spent sort of 15 years on factory floors yeah. <laughs> looking at how things are made so
2: but this is trial and error with the machines A that were educated. that were supposed to be working but weren't actually set up properly and we had no way of ever making one because they were just that they were, had the wrong gauge needles put in them and just things that you couldn't actually make anything anyway uh, it wasn't down to user error. It was actually the machines. But, you know, we, we've, we're we now, yeah, we've got them dialled in. <laughs> we've had them dialled in for years, but that was a nightmare to start with.
1: Yeah, it's clockwork now. It's lovely.
0: <laughs> so tell me a bit about the machines, because I imagine that these are all period machines. You haven't sort of, you're not using loads of modern machines, but you mentioned nine different types of machine were vital.
2: Yeah. There's a lot of... Um, because the weight of the fabric we use uh even the sort of period correct machines from the 50s union special machines generally were for up to 11 ounce levi's denim uh ours is 14 to you know we use well ranging from 13 to 18 ounce denim so even those machines aren't set up properly for our our weight of denim so you have to recalibrate everything um and change the needles, and try different needle weights and gauges and so on. Um, yeah.
1: So if you if you ever come here, um, you'll you'll enter the muse and come into our lovely little shop. And behind the shop is the workshop, and the workshop comprises of one, two, three, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 different machines. <clears throat> two of them are what we call. A lock stitch machine um one is a faff one is a juki so um they're kind of quite standard jeans so they're the ones that do all your top stitching so um all of the stitching around your pocket openings and your arcuits that's what they do we've then got a 1957 um, cover stitch machine um which is a union special that um does our uh, belt loops so it creates a particular stitch that will hold a belt loop together. We've got um, a sister machine, a 1957 Union Special 43200G, which is quite infamous on the denim scene. Which is, is that your hemmer stitch? <laughs> that's your chain
2: stitch. That's, <laughs> that's your that's chain your hemming,
1: stitch. Hemming machine. Yeah, that's the chain stitch. Um, so yeah, it's the second generation. So it's brown. Um, But it runs beautifully. Um, We've then got a Union Special feed off the arm machine, which looks a little like an alien. Um, It's taken me 10 years to tame that beast, to be honest. Um, It's not something, it's not a machine that you just sit at and and know how to work immediately. So it's a triple stitch, chain stitch machine. Um, And you have to sit in a particular way on a particular seat with two bits of fabric and one wraps around the other um creating this really super strong um finish which is what you might see if you've got a decent pair of jeans on the inside leg or around the yoke or the center back seam it's not
2: overlocked it's not the zigzaggy stitch it's the it's the Um, one that's folded in it's it's the
0: fold yeah yeah. Yeah. Yeah, seam. Yeah.
1: um and that works off of an air compressor so it can be a little noisy sometimes but nick as an engineer i think you can appreciate some of these <laughs> machines we've then got um a 1960s brother um bartak machine which is a machine that does about i think it's 27 stitches in about two seconds yeah um which is the stitch that holds everything it's your reinforcing stitch so the stitch that holds the belt loops on that goes around your fly um we've got a lovely reese 101 which is your button-holding machine
0: oh i love them
1: yeah they're handsome um yeah. sometimes called the iron Duke, um and they've been making that jeans since the 1890s they've been making that machine since the 1890s um so yeah that that is beautifully calibrated shall we say yeah we've got another singer machine from the 1960s which actually looks more like it's from the 1930s it looks like some sort of
2: futurism
1: futurism yeah yeah which is another multi-needle chain stitch machine which we use to put our waistbands on with you've then got things like London's finest durable fasteners um ratchet press which puts all your rivets on and buttons and various others
2: not laser guided but my eyesight guided yes. <laughs> I would oh. to everything relax.
1: is analog it's
2: very analog <laughs>
1: So, um, yeah, that's the kind of little trip around. And then, obviously, we've got the pattern cutting table. So we've got various different yeah. cutting options on that. We've got an Eastman blade. Yeah. We've got...
2: But that's what it takes to make jeans. a pair of jeans. Mm. Um, so when people come in and say, I think I might start making jeans, I'm like, yep, go ahead. <laughs> if you want the headache of sauce and all this stuff, doing it the authentic way, fair do's. You know, it's, it's uh, yeah, not an easy undertaking.
0: Yeah, certainly not if you're going to be efficient and make lots of pairs. I imagine you could sort of make one pair at home if you took your time Mm. and made it in a different way or a simpler way. But uh, Yeah.
1: Yeah. If you were willing to overlook some sort of quality things, then yes, you can certainly make a pair on your home sewing machine if you wish. But yeah, they're not really going to last you.
0: So, Kelly, when you started out your career in the garment industry, or rather when you started you probably studied somewhere, was this kind of what you had in mind, what you hoped to work with rather than where you actually ended up?
1: Oh, absolutely. This for me has always been an end game. You know this this was a dream come true when when I got to do this. I had no idea that it was ever going to happen for me um so my final collection at university was in denim um, and I used various different qualities from chambray all the way through to heavy stuff um from a little shop in Soho which is one of the last remaining shops <laughs> fabric shops in Soho called Borovics um and they were amazing I remember phoning them up as like this kind of wet behind the ears 19 year old saying I've got my final collection this year and I really need some denim and I can't afford the train fare down to London can you send me some and they did it all by post they were incredible and I described to them exactly what I was looking for um so yeah from from there I went into buying I was working on a buying floor for a, for a big multi retailer on a denim department so it's, it's always been denim. I set up denim departments for suppliers. I worked for various brands. I worked for various high street retailers. Um, it's always been denim. I've never worked with anything else. And um, there are quite a few of us women denim specialists around. There's the lovely Amy Leverton, who does denim dudes. Um, so there are there are a few of us, but we are few and far between.
0: Yeah, I'm almost surprised when I meet someone who is sort of that into it. I mean, I can understand if you're into tweed, but, I mean, denim. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm just being cheeky now.
1: (laughs) I mean, why would you honestly be interested in denim? It's got no history at all.
0: (laughs) Mm. Mm. It is interesting, isn't it? Because it is such a major thing and it has been going on for so long and it just does not seem to end. It's just evolving all the time
1: mm.
2: yeah people don't even consider it because it's just so you know yeah
1: ubiquitous
2: ubiquitous it's just that it's just that thing that people wear and that's it
0: <laughs> but i'm really curious though scott how did you sort of come into all this is your uh, background also garments
2: yeah it's, um i studied Art and study fashion and textiles at college back in the early nineties, ninety two. Um I did it for a bit and I realized back then in the dark days that you really had to go into couture or Savile Row. And when I was sixteen I didn't really know where Savile Row was and I didn't want to do female stuff. It was very limited. Streetwear wasn't even a thing. It was considered in the face magazine, but that was it. That was your lot. Um certainly wasn't ever considered on an on academic course. So I did study it, yeah. I studied it for a couple of years, um, and I was really into clothes. Um, really into clothes, really into music, into uh, subcultures. Um, I was just telling uh, someone the other day that my earliest memories were when I was about five or six. My mum used to run a uh, drop-in centre for unemployed youths, in the early in the late 70s early 80s now i would have been five six at the time and it was just full of suede heads uh skin heads um ska was in and i can name all the bands and i can name all the all the clothes they wore you know and i i, I just remember it just remember seeing skins and scooters and and then it moved on to to ska and then it moved on to combat rock with the clash and i can just remember all the clothes they wore um and there was a lot of glue sniffing going on, and uh, the only thing they <laughs> never wore was new romantic clothing because that just wasn't that wasn't tough enough for these kids that were just going nowhere, unfortunately, in life. Um, but yeah, I saw it all, and the, yeah, just fags and sniffing glue, and yeah, and it was the madness. I can name the bands, you know, Madness, Beat, the, the UK Beat, as they're called, Dexies, uh, The Clash. The jam, all these sort of skinhead scar late seventies, early eighties new wave subcultures were coming in, but only the tough ones. I was only seeing that bomber jackets uh acid dyed denim, bova boots, um yeah, bostic glue <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was my uh, that was my only call and then I got into obviously clothes even then in the early eighties I was into adamant. All the other kids were into Star Wars. I was into Adam and... Because I wanted to look like Adam and the Ants. Uh, so I used to dress up like that. And then come 10th birthday... All the kids wanted to have... Either BMXs or... Football kits for Christmas. And I wanted to have a pair of 501s Because I'd seen a Nick Cayman advert. Um, and that was a big deal to me. I was keeping yeah. that quiet. I was keeping it to myself. But... <laughs> If you were in the UK at the time in 1986 and saw that advert at 87, bang, amazing. Um, So I remember going up to Oxford Street and dragging my mum around all these jean shops to try and find a small enough pair, I guess they were 28 waist, to fit my 10-year-old body. Um, And I guess that was my first foray into jeans. And I I was aware of the 50s lifestyle because I used to go to the local library and buy and rent not rent um uh, what do you do in a library you don't hire out borrow. you loan borrow borrow, borrow borrow uh all these old rock and roll albums because that's all they had they didn't have anything contemporary so i was really into rock and roll 60s music and uh, it just tied in with the whole nick Kamen 501 advert and yeah it was uh that was it 86 yeah
1: I think I, I remember the same. Obviously, we grew up in different towns, but I remember walking through my hometowns. They called it a shopping precinct, which was like a 1960s kind of... New per- town. Per- yeah. Purpose-built sort of town centre and seeing three of these notorious boys who were clearly like 15... I must have been eight or nine at the time seeing these 15 or 16-year-old skinheads. One of them was a punk... Two of them were skins sitting on this wall, you know, smoking cigarettes, clearly planning what they were going to get up to next, but just wearing these super cool, like Dr. Martins laced yeah. up with their
2: bleached you know, denim,
1: bleached denim, and bleached
2: denim everywhere. Yeah, really? I
1: still remember one of the guy's names. And, and it really is like an image that just stayed with me. And then I think we we're talking about how music and fashion used to really go hand in hand, you know, the two were very linked. I mean, now you have, you know, pop stars who have their own brands, but back then they just worked very much hand in hand together and created a look I mean, you know, yeah.
2: Vivian Westwood. Well that's um, it Westwood's um, uh buccaneer look was was that a man. I'd like to found out. Obviously yeah. I didn't know who Vivian Westwood was, but that I guess was she sort that's of, what inspired the whole Dandy Highwayman look, uh, which is what I was into in nineteen eighty as the age of five. Uh, so it's it funny, and I was as a kid, I just used to like look through the local the Grattan catalogue at clothes. I was obsessed with clothes. I never owned them because I didn't have any income, but I used to make lists of the clothes I wanted, grown-up clothes. Uh, so for me, it wasn't Star Wars; it was clothes. Um, and
1: I think d- I remember. Um nana cherry coming out this is a little few years later and um thinking you know she was the first woman that i really wanted to dress like and i knew that she had a pair of levi's i think they were 911s um and a pair of high top nike trainers and like this kind of cropped nike t-shirt and thinking i want to look like that and i remember going through my mum's catalogue thinking what looks similar (laughs) that i can get to Sort of emulate well, that was a the thing
0: then, wasn't it? Because you could actually dress up like stars yeah. because they were actually wearing regular yeah. clothes,
2: yeah. It, it was the dawn of streetwear, it was 87 88. Um, I was getting into hip hop at that point, but yeah, that was it. Uh, and yeah, I guess so. Getting back to the studying thing, yeah, I, I did fashion, <laughs> I did fashion in 92. Um and then the wilderness years, I I dropped out and I went out and worked in a record shop because I wanted to buy a, a 1965 Volkswagen Beetle um, and buy a nice drum kit and buy all these things that I couldn't afford if I was a student. So, yeah, music, music was a big deal. Uh, and the clothes that went with the music was a big deal. Um, but even back then, I remember going up to, first of all, London trips to Kensington Market in 92, to get uh, my old 60s clothing because I guess that year the Doors movie was out and I remember I wanted a, a suede, a rough out trucker jacket like Eddie Vedder wore as well on Pearl Jam so I went and got that from Kensington Market um, and then a year later I was into Acid Jazz so it was all about Needle cords, Levi's needle cords, oh, and, the, yeah. and the accompanying jacket with it. Um, and it was all about going to Camden at that point. And then I was a mod, so at that point I was buying all this mod clobber. And then the following year, 94, Britpop came about, uh, and I was still doing the mod thing. And I was, just, I, I was stuck in a, an absolute time capsule for years. In fact, that's how I got – I did my whole degree in that, essentially – I was living in 1966, <laughs> um, and I just fastidiously bought garments, clothes, uh, cameras, all my everything. My car, my TV, everything was for, was from that period. Um, I didn't step out of that time frame. In fact, my my I studied photography at uni and did cultural studies that went with it. So I ended up doing assisting on uh, photography, assisting for. Um, For the Dazed and Confused, ID, Face Magazine in the late 90s. Um, So therefore, I got to see the pop stars again. I was shooting them at this point, um, which was interesting. Um, And also very nerve-wracking, because this is back in the day where it was analogue photography. And being an assistant, you had to get it right. Otherwise, you never got the pictures back and you'd get sacked. Um, This is pre-digital. You never knew if you had the images. Uh, And it was upon you to know your stuff um yeah so yeah I, you know i touched on that and then i i went into oh god early 2000s i was doing tv and uh mtv set design and a whole loads of stuff um yeah and then stuff in between <laughs> <laughs> i've had loads i i, I, was, I became a, a joiner as well I, a furniture maker i got a sitting guilt in uh, bench joinery as well so i was making furniture at one point and yeah, stuff. Always sort of handy stuff because I'm dyslexic, so don't give me anything academic.
0: <laughs> and at some t- point you met up and...
2: Yeah. Well, I guess we can talk about that. Uh, I met Kelly by running a club night with a friend of mine and we booked her to DJ. She was, a, she was the fancy pants London DJ who had the expensive records. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So i got her down and um that was that yeah so we we didn't meet through clothing we met through music um and being booking her to to play records of uh, 50s r and B. So I, I
0: was guess, about to say was it yeah. a vintage doom? it was
2: a bit of northern bit of 50s mostly 50s r&b yeah yeah
1: um in terms of who can out geek who here we're we're definitely on an even keel, I would say. Yeah, um, I've been kind of involved in the sort of 50s and 60s mod scene up in London for a long time. And I've been collecting records for ages and didn't think anything of it, just loved music, you know. And um, a friend of mine, a photographer called Dean Chalkley said, you've got these like really incredible records Kelly you should really DJ and I said well I have no idea how to do that and he said I've got a club night at a pub called the Boogaloo which is in Highgate and um at the time it was a pretty legendary place so he dragged me up to his flat one day and taught me how to DJ and um and that was it I just started playing my records out in London it was great because I used to get paid for it as well (laughs) which was a bit of a surprise um so we've been both on this sort of weird fringe scene for however many years, having never met each other. And then a friend suggested for me to DJ at your club, and then that was it. I remember opening the door, and you offering to carry my records, and I
0: classic move,
1: quite yeah. But I cl- quite <laughs> quite clearly said, no, you're not going to touch my records. Yeah, I <laughs> Yeah, then you offered me a drink and I thought, well, that is just plain weird. <laughs> People don't do this in London. No,
2: that's the difference between Brighton and London, you see.
1: And, uh, and yeah, it was great. We, we sort of, we hooked up over that and then we both were riding sort of vintage scooters. So Scott still got his Lambretta, or one of them, um, and I had a Vespa. So just lifestyle-wise, it just worked out really nicely. We it's were,
2: always been old stuff.
1: Old stuff.
2: Without giving it a lot of consideration. Um, just because I've been doing old stuff for so long, uh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that that was kind of where we're at. But um,
0: yeah, I sort of got a hint of it right at the start when you were making um, aprons from that sort of era, and then you mentioned uh, rockabilly and Goodwood. So, is the vintage lifestyle a, a big thing?
2: Yeah, it's become it's become commerce it's weird it's uh i mean I, I was doing it since i was sort of 16 and embarrassed about it and then it's become a thing now where you can actually uh, uh, make money from it um i mean when i was going to these shops to get old stuff in the 90s it was just secondhand clothes now it's vintage clothing and it's uh, it's it's a thing um there's so many vintage shops in brighton it's unbelievable. But before you could buy this stuff in charity shops uh, because just because no one else wanted it really. Um, so the nature of that has changed. Um, it's gone from underground to overground uh, to saturation um, in that respect. But
1: yeah. Uh, I think um, the the denim sort of feeds that part of us that we love in terms of geekiness and and detail, because it has the history and it has, you know, such a broad sort of spectrum in terms of washing, creating the fits, finding the history, finding the quality, creating the right trim, creating the right you know, swing tag or back pocket overrider. You can work with an artist if you choose to who could create something special. You can hook up with other brands that are on the same playing field, like, you know, our our brilliant friends over at TSPTR. We work in collaboration with them really nicely because we offer something that they don't actually offer in their own collection. So there's this whole like lovely little scene around denim, which sort of encapsulates all of that that we love. So, you know, musicians love denim. They love going on stage and, and wearing stuff. We get to work with that. And,
2: yeah. yeah. However, I would say that we're not a replica brand. No. And we never have been. Um, just because there's so many brands doing that so very well. Um, and we never, I never wanted to do that because I wanted to have a level of creativity in the design and the involvement if you're just replicating something yeah i don't think you get that do you really but um we wanted to do our own thing and also i'm constantly changing my look personally myself and we do tend to make things this is the agenda my agenda to put uh, we make garments for me <laughs> it's very self-indulging well, you say naturally, but a lot of brands don't. They're not making it for themselves. They're making it for a market that they may not even give a shit about. Sorry for the swearing, but for us, it's a completely self-indulgent business. Um, from everything, from the, I, I changed my style of clothing. Periods. You know I've looked. I've looked back on the last twelve years, and I've gone from Ivy to sort of wearer to late 60s early 70s and if I was just doing a specific 1954 rockabilly thing I wouldn't be able to mix and match and you know change up
1: it would really limit us it
2: would limit us and that's not our customer anyway we can suit that customer quite nicely but we don't want to limit ourselves to that customer um so yeah the bottom line is we make things that I want to wear and uh, that's what gets me excited
0: well, that's what puts real heart into it, isn't it? Because you actually make the stuff you want to wear, yeah, and yeah, yeah. you're truly invested in it.
2: Yeah, that and that's the bottom line.
0: <laughs> so, given that there's millions of cuts and looks and fits and so forth, how would you describe what Dawson does? Uh,
2: it's we're not chasing fashion because we'd be losing that battle um and from the from the off, we never planned to do that because we didn't want to, and we simply didn't have the money and the speed to manufacture that quick anyway that's fast fashion so um it was it was to make clothes that we liked um I guess we do have an aesthetic and overall oh that's a Dawson look. It was fairly minimal um to start with, but then the game. When we do collaborations with people, we can go all out and do something quite different to what we would normally do and not worry. So we, do, we, we kind of do the off-the-wall stuff with collaborations uh, with no fear of offending our regular customers. Um, that's nice.
1: I think in terms of the design process of Dawson Denim is we always put fit and fabric first. So that's where we always start. So we will always become most excited about the quality of selvage that we have just picked for something. And then we will work around the style. So what what style will that denim particularly suit? And, and we work with, if I say we work with three long-running family-run mills in Japan who we've grown lovely relationships with, um, me particularly, over the past 25 years Um, so we get to see things that are quite exciting and because we order quite small quantities we can we can work with quite sort of um new fabrics or fabrics that are a bit different or have a different twist um so I guess that's where the basis of all of our designs come from it always starts with quality and then fits So, yeah, um, we have around, how many fits do we have now in, in our jeans? In jeans,
2: we have seven styles. Um, it, it's, again, we're at odds with what was in before. We've, all, we've been known for our white jeans for a long time. Um, and we did trade shows seven years ago showcasing them and people would just laugh or just think, what on earth is that? Mm. Um, so we've never you know, um, done skinny jeans. We've never done that just because I don't wear skinny jeans. Um, and so we've just done things that we want to wear without really considering what others think.
1: (laughs) So each fit of jean may come in various different selvage, qualities um each fit of jean may come in a washed version a raw version we have a type 2 jacket we have um a deck jacket which is um, inspired by usn military jacket um we have a sack jacket which is just your classic workwear you know three pocket jacket um so there's quite a lot we do a pair of um usn military pants we've got a chino we've we've done some amazing like vietnam era jungle pants yeah. that we did in collaboration with tsptr we've um
2: usually the the thing is we take an, an existing garment and then we put a twist in it and we make it contemporary if you like with japanese fabric um so there'll be something historical about it there, there'll be a a point, a starting point, and then we'll make it our own. Um, so, yeah, that's where we're at. It's usually, yeah, there's some usually a silhouette of some sort that was an existing design, and we would just go with it and we'll change it up.
0: Do you find that almost whatever you make, there will be someone who wants it?
2: Yeah, we've learned... <laughs> this, this really <laughs> drives us mad. We 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 bring out things year after year, and people always want the things that we designed five years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I've got a friend who runs a... He was really good at running a business, and he was ahead of the curve, and he was ahead of the curve every year. And it must have been so frustrating for him uh, because others copied it a year later, and they got all the acclaim. And uh, So, yeah, you you can bang your head against the wall with coming out with things that you think are going to shift, but people invariably want the thing that you made five years ago year in year out uh yeah so that's but then again we're not a fashion business so we're not at a complete financial loss having not sold this season's worth of whatever trends in uh it can get a bit frustrating that people just want the same old same old but you know and then again you know at least we're selling something so yeah
0: yeah, I guess at some point you have to accept that business is business and while well, you'd like to make other stuff, you do actually have to put dinner on the table. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 You get your is bread and butter. Sort of stuff.
0: Boring side of things. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's um yeah, as I said, it, it's selling. It's uh we got our bread and butter stuff and then we have the, the fancy stuff that may not sell, but you know what, it's it entertained me for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So all the new stuff you're making this year is just going into storage for five years until yeah. people have gotten well, on. Yeah,
1: because we're just too far ahead. It, yeah, <laughs> no, we're joking.
2: It, it's funny though because talking of this, we were we started 11 years ago and Instagram wasn't a thing. It was fairly conventional with the way you sold. Well, conventional, you had a website and you had a shop, or you didn't have a shop, and that's how you sold. And you sold stuff on a Saturday in a shop, Um, the dynamic has changed unbelievably. Um, Yeah, it's just gone crazy to the point where, yeah, Instagram changed it all up about five or six years ago. And that's that. I can speak about great lengths about that, but it's.
1: (laughs) Yep, come on.
0: (laughs) Go ahead.
2: Well, you know, we got hijacked about a year ago, just over a year and a half ago. Just uh, before
1: Christmas. Just before
2: Christmas, a year ago, and our Instagram account went down.
1: Some little snurge decided to take it over.
2: Uh, and we. And for, held
1: us ransom.
2: Held us, held us ransom <laughs> for the. It, it was for some. So, something like 100 quid. I don't know what it was. It, was a, it sounded like a teenager in his bedroom. Just, but anyway, we got hijacked. And uh, we thought that was the end of our, of our marketing because Instagram was down and we relied on this for the last five years. Um, and then we didn't have any Instagram for a, a couple of months and our sales went up and we realised that, yeah. you know what, it's not the be all and end all. And it was, a, it was a huge relief because I'm an anxious person as it is and Instagram gives me anxiety. Um, and it has done for years. And I'm not alone here, being a small business, having to rely on that thing. And uh, all of a sudden we didn't have to rely on it. And we focused on other ways of marketing um, with our newsletters and they are really successful. So in that respect, it's, yeah, it was a real wake up call for us being hijacked because we wouldn't have known that. And we would have fretted about when to put pictures up, what was the content, do we do? Is it messing with the algorithms? You know, it's the, it's the conversation you probably hear all the time. Um, and uh, it was a relief, a huge relief.
0: And Instagram does take up an enormous amount of time.
2: Does it? Headspace. Headspace. Absolutely. It gets in the way. Yeah. And for us, we realised that it's uh, you either have to throw lots of money at it be an established brand or be an influencer that doesn't seem to have the same obstacles as a business with the algorithms. Uh, but again, I, I may be wrong. In fact, no one seems to know.
0: <laughs> well, that that is absolutely
2: <laughs> Yeah, we contacted Instagram about our thing and we got someone who works there and, yeah, they really didn't know. She said, yeah, this, this happens with a few companies. Uh, hmm. So, yeah. It's
1: just it's just kind of fascinating because obviously we've we've known a lot of people that work in marketing and social networking and we've had an awful lot of advice. Some of it has been brilliant, some of it's just been a bit meh.
2: But it's all, all been expensive. You know. Uh, it's all been expensive it's all been advice. Expensive,
1: but I can guarantee somebody sees a shop sign out in the street on a Saturday, comes in, tries something on, buys it. Yeah.
2: My 100 pound so... shop sign.
1: <laughs> And sometimes the old ways are the good ways. it's
2: generated way more sales than instagram yeah it's and it, and yeah so so our business model has changed because of this thing this thing this platform um and also it's created many more brands that are possibly not brands but smoke and mirror brands yeah. um the competition's ramped up but is it true competition or is it just someone that's pretending to have a business uh and this is the same across the board with photography, for sure. Um, I know a lot of pro- professional photographers that are scratching around for work now because, you know, everyone's a photographer. It's um, quite easy
1: to put a filter on something and make it look good for Yeah, Instagram. a smoke
2: and mirrors business. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, really, it's really changed things up as well as far as um, marketing goes, as far as... I spoke to a friend with a very established brand the other day and he's given up on expensive photo shoots because he's he's just now taking crappy pictures with his phone and that the worse the better and he says that gets me more likes on Instagram than a choreographed expensive shoot and it's like okay well, where do we stand here what, what do we do um,
1: i I don't know if um, if social social media in that respect is doing brands justice because of the type of reach that you can get yeah i don't know for me the out. I, felt-
0: I think it used to be that you had expensive photo shoots because you were going to use them in magazines and yeah. so forth so they actually lived for a lot longer yeah but yeah. spending a lot of money on an instagram photo which no yeah. one will see once three days has passed yeah. yeah, must be harder and harder.
2: It's not even that. I can take a professional picture, but invariably the p- crappy picture that I took on my phone, will be with no popular. no consideration for composition, light, and so on, will be more popular. So that it's might not even be a,
0: it, pity so people, likes. Maybe
2: <laughs> I don't think it's even that. People want amateur.
0: <laughs>
1: pity. Keep, they,
2: people want to keep it real, and real means crap, but real means amateur, and. That, you know, Gucci do campaigns now with the most amateur-looking pictures because they realise that's what what they want.
1: And I think you have to decide, I think, whether you want your brand to be forced into being portrayed in that way or whether actually you want to keep up a certain standard. And whether you want to keep up a certain standard because you want great quality images and you want your brand to be portrayed in a certain way. Or if you just want to take some sort of naff picture on a broken mobile phone and get 300,000 likes yeah. on Instagram I don't know for me
2: but as i said I, i'm not that as worried as i was a year and a half ago because we realized that that instagram isn't isn't that you know successful for us compared to newsletters where we can put nice images up considered yeah. photos and content copy considered copy not a sentence describing something uh and you know it's horses for courses it's it's um it's our demographic of of customer as well
1: i would say it's much more enjoyable for us to work on a newsletter than it is for us to work on an instagram post so most of our efforts go into great newsletters that we write with a guy who's a brilliant copywriter here in brighton yeah and, yeah, that's that's much more fun for us, doing that. Yeah. You know, and, and actually knowing and seeing that you're directly <clears throat> kind of conversing with your customer. I think that's more interesting. You're talking to someone who has signed up to a newsletter that wants to hear about what you're doing. I think that's much more interesting to me.
2: Yeah, and we're not the TikTok generation anyway, and we don't appeal to that. So that's, <laughs> that's a load off my mind. Yeah. <laughs>
0: i I was just sitting here thinking about um, i mean i think one of the brands i think who do instagram sort of maybe best of all is old town up in norfolk when will and marie do their little q and a's or they're just filming each other i mean it's so genuine and so brilliant and it doesn't take much time but it really lets you in under the skin of what they're up to so with quite minimal effort and just being themselves yeah they're doing a fantastic job of social media and it's like they've understood something that almost no one else has understood because they're trying to be all fancy and posh and well designed and stuff but really just two genuine people talking about what they're doing and it's just (laughs) mind-blowing
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the main thing, isn't it? That's the reason why we're on it, is because we want to connect with people. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: You know, we don't want to connect with somebody that we don't know. We want to connect with with people.
0: Now, you were mentioning um, that you use Japanese denim. Mm. Yeah. Why? why just Japanese? I know this is an obvious leading question because I know the answer, but talk about it.
2: Well, I, I could start with the fact that um we we're not we're we're environmentally aware we're also um aware of welfare um well you you, you take over <laughs> this is this is on our, our our list our business agenda when we first started up it was um to be environmentally conscious conscientious yeah
1: and and to be sustainable to a large extent so um we're not
2: going to go down that we're not gonna go down that route route.
1: everybody goes on down that route I mean if you want to look at our credentials we'll quite happily send them to you send me an email (laughs) we'll go into it and it'll be in great depth but it's very uncomfortable to have a conversation about that kind of thing when you work in Japan you have the comfort and knowledge that you're working with the best tradespeople of that type so They are master craftsmen. They are weaving the best denim that they can possibly weave. Um, You know, the quality is reliable. You know, they um, deliver on time. The price that they offer you is the price that you get. There's no... um, There's no working out on margins. There's no negotiation that needs to happen. There's no uncomfortable conversations. You know, business is done in a very respectful manner. Um, And and the welfare
2: of the staff are there as well.
1: Yeah, so also the government have lots of legislations in terms of being paid a fair wage, making sure that there is no impact to the surrounding areas of where anything is made. So, for example, the... I don't know, the um, the water that's used in um, the mills that we work with all has to be recycled. So they all have their own recycling vats and that water is taken away and then it is safely put back into the water system. So... Um,
2: yeah, they look like sewage plants, essentially stuck on the side of a, of a mill. <laughs> but
1: they have to have it. They
2: have to have it by law.
1: Um, uh, and also, you know, these people are working in very safe environments. There's nothing, you know, health and safety is paramount in Japan. No one's going to get hurt. And believe me, I have seen places in Thailand, in China, in India, that are not safe places to work. And they're not safe places because they have no Human Rights Act. Um, So for me, things like that are very important that the people that I'm working with are being paid a fair wage, they're making the best product that they possibly can, they're not being overworked, and that they're not creating huge damage to the environment. So if that isn't enough for what we're doing and what we're producing in a slow way, then I don't know really what is. And that's why we go to Japan. And also because they're brilliant to work with. I mean, in terms of business people, it's just a joy to, to work with these mills that we're working with.
2: And a denim's the best. You can feel... There can, it came. <laughs> you don't
1: even have to be... You don't even know how,
2: to know how it was dyed or woven or whatever. Just the handle on it is brilliant.
1: You just need to touch it. And this is what I say to people yeah. who have never experienced wearing a pair of salvaged jeans before, and in particular women. Please just go and try on a great quality pair of Japanese selvage jeans and you will see and feel the difference.
0: This is where I sort of think that when you're talking about quality jeans you don't really need to talk about the sustainability as much because as you say the denim has been made in a proper way but when you then have a pair of jeans that are properly made to last from an excellent fabric i mean you can use them you can repair them you can pass them on to someone else or use them to their tatters but you can keep fixing them and as long as they don't have elastane in them so that they will degrade naturally I mean,
1: it, I mean, what, what more do you need to say?
0: Yeah, and you haven't acid washed them or all, all these mad treatments they do, which are horrendous for the environment.
2: No, we, Laser, we, we have it? actually found a new wash place that uh, was a pH neutral. What was it?
1: Yeah, so we're doing some eco washing here in the UK.
2: Yeah, with
1: a very small laundry up north, but is absolutely brilliant at what they do, um, and know how to deal with you know washing denim which is great
2: but we only did that last season for a a small collection but uh, invariably it's it's raw denim uh
1: straight from the loom
2: yeah
1: and that you know the mills that were one in one in particular has an actual samphorizing machine and and also what's great with Sorry, I should I'm just brushing over that. One actually has the samphorizing machine. So samphorizing is a process of pre-shrinking that was created in the 1920s and they're very rare machines. You don't often see them running. But what's great in Japan is that everybody has their own specific Um, speciality so for example there might be a mill that is particularly good at dyeing with this certain thing so another mill who's weaving that needs that particular indigo might go to that mill to get it dyed so they're all working in collaboration with each other it's a very different um, way of thinking I mean I would say even here we're all very you know closed doors and not wanting everybody to know our secrets but in japan it's all about creating that overall thing and they all work together as a community which is just lovely to see
2: and also the the um the aesthetic the the denim itself um they've taken an original um denim they've run with it uh and that's basically what we've done with our designs We've, we've taken Possibly a, a more conventional garment. And then we've put our own hand, handwriting on it. And that's what the, the Japanese have done with the denim. They've taken something and, and they've made it they've enhanced it or just done something crazy, which ties in with the whole aesthetic of what we're doing. Um, yeah, so it's not just a replica. Oh, of course you can get your replica denims from Japan. They do that brilliantly as well. But invariably we don't get replica denims that look like comb mill denim from 1947 because there's replica brands using that on their 47501 copies. So we generally go for more interesting denims to go with our more interesting design.
0: You mentioned that British companies will often sort of close doors, but surely the way you're working in your collaborations is doing just that opening doors. I often think that small brands, instead of competing with each other, they should sort of band together Because if you like one of them, you might like another.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: And you're all doing some good to each other.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Absolutely. And I think we we do that a lot. I mean, when I say that we're closed doors here in the UK, I guess not in terms of I'm being a hypocrite, because actually... You know, if we have a customer that comes here that's trying on a pair of jeans and we can't answer their question, we will quite happily say to them, look, you really need to try higher over in Wales. And we'll pass them on to a company that we know will be making something that will answer their specific needs. Yeah. So there is definitely that happening. Um, And
2: also the crossover with styles as well. We've never done, Hyatt have done slim jeans from the start, and we never have. So we've we've never had competition in that respect. Um, We've done something different to them. And it's the same when we did all the trade shows. We used to talk to Giles at Ironheart and and, uh, Indigo Farah. We know all these guys, and we were just doing a design that was completely different. It wasn't ever going to interfere with their market, and vice versa. So
1: In that sense, the denim community is very together.
2: Yeah, They probably thought we were just crazy (laughs) for not doing something that sells so well that they know sells so well.
1: Actually, I know that they did think we were crazy because Andrew Chen told me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: But, um, you know, that's that, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of it in recent years has been just reworkings of a five-pocket standard gene.
2: Oh, yeah, we're not inventing the wheel here.
0: So... What is your sort of um, alternative view on it?
2: What, what's our USP our, on our product, or what's.
0: I'm asking you for your secret, really. What is your trade <laughs> secret? So. The,
2: the Colonel the Saunders. The secret recipe. Secret recipe. <laughs> I think you just gotta be. Um, you gotta know. You, uh, for us, it's about um, having put in the hours, and hopefully that is conveyed in the make of the goods and the knowledge of our denim selection and the knowledge of the machines we use and just and at the bottom line the British market for blokes is they don't probably really I don't they just want a good looking pair of jeans that they can show off to their mates with that is it um, that's the bottom line for jeans market in the UK it's about Having a good-looking garment that looks that they can show off to their friends, Uh, and anything else is the uh, icing on the cake. Really, Uh,
1: don't you think that some of it, some of our secret recipe is the way in which we use our machines? Yeah, you you know, you can't copy how a 1957 sewing machine runs. Yeah, and we don't have a twin needle machine. they all have their own personalities in the way that they stitch that you can't mimic on a, on a computer operated machine, you know? So it's all about the person at the sewing machine that helps create the handwriting. Yeah. If that makes sense.
0: In your previous career, Kelly, you were obviously making the kind of jeans that you were competing with today. Now, um, what is it like selling high-priced jeans in a market where people are saying, well, I can get it for 20 quid somewhere else?
1: I think that customer is not knocking on our door, really. I think the customer that wants to pay 20 quid I think two things. I think we've got a lot of educating left to do for people in terms of cheap price goods and how much damage we're doing to everything, to the environment, to people working in those factories. You know, there's that huge sort of political issue that needs to be addressed and we need to have some sort of safety measures put in place for that so that the people that are working in those factories that are delivering to us here in the UK have some sort of safety net. I also think that we need to educate that customer out of buying those products. And you know, there's that whole thing, that whole sort of thing about buy less, buy better. Yeah, that makes sense, but you have to have the money up front. You know, you have to have save that money in order to buy something. And the way in which we, the, the consumer purchases now is very immediate. I mean, when I was growing up, I, I was, you know, taught by my parents to save my money. And when you've got enough, you can then go and buy it. Whereas now it's very immediate. I need a new pair of jeans. I'll just go to some high street chain and pay $14.99 for a pair. And actually my conscience won't think about it too much that somebody hasn't been paid their hourly wage this week to to make them. So I think, firstly, that customer isn't knocking on our door. As is
2: a very considered customer. It's a really considered purchase um,
1: and they've often researched us before they've come they here. They know everything. um So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that must be so a, feel a bit weird when they wander in.
1: <laughs> it's, ver- it's very strange. Yeah. It's even, you know. Yeah,
2: because we, we haven't got a shop that's on the high street. So you have to know we're here. You have to have done your homework. Um, so that helps a great deal. Um
1: Back in the um, 90s, there used to be a few shops that used to have to ring on a doorbell or book an appointment to come and see. And they were the shops that I was excited about. There was one in particular down Portobello Road that um, sold original catwalk clothing and um, you'd ring on the doorbell and the guy would come and take a look at you and see if you were good enough to come in or not. And I just kind of loved the excitement and the buzz around being able to see something that nobody else is going to see. And I think that was the concept of us moving in here to the Muse, is that actually it doesn't have an open shop front. So you have to push a door open. Yeah. So And also
2: people get the tour, It's kind
1: of secretive. When people
2: come in, I show them around the machines and they're absolutely gobsmacked that things are actually made by people. Um, they don't see this environment um
1: it's invisible isn't it so they get they get
2: the the sort of 15 minute tour by me of the workshop and and me explaining the garments uh yeah that's what you get when you come in here
1: but even if we do get that customer who not who accidentally comes on in because they think they can get a 20 pound pair of jeans here we still give them that experience yeah so when they leave they actually then are aware of how much it costs and how much effort goes into making one of our garments and often they come back you know it might not be that year but they do often come back and buy something from us so i think it has an effect
0: that kind of loops back to what you said about buying better because if you don't have that knowledge how do you know what is better yeah no you're quite right you might be looking at some sort of top name brand pair of jeans and you think well it's a top-name brand, and they're expensive. But unless you know what to look for, I mean, they might be total crap, and often are.
2: Yeah. yeah but that's also the psychology of cost, isn't it? Oh, that's expensive. It's got to be good. Oh, that's mid-price. That's not as good as the expensive ones. And Yeah, there's, there's an awful lot of expensive bad jeans out there um, by Perceived designer brands. Value. Yeah, so trying to convey that, you're up against it. For compared to the five hundred pound jeans, which are a load of rubbish, um, and there is no answer to that because they think, well, well, aren't they just saying the same thing as you? You know what I mean? You get to this, but our customers pretty knowledgeable, to be honest. They're, um, they're savvy. They're savvy. I would say our, our the most popular customer we have is a thirty seven year old male designer that designs trainers. Yeah, they have an awful lot of trainer designs for the for the big sports brands. Buying our jeans, which is lovely, because they're already in that. They understand design. Uh, that that's probably our target. Loads of artists as well.
1: And photographers.
2: Photographers, artists, but mainly designers. Mainly
1: designers.
2: And I don't know if they're just copying our jeans when they get them. I don't really mind that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but we do have a lot of repeat customers as well
1: yeah we have a high percentage of repeat customers which is lovely it's that's really the best nice. thing and they've really become a community we run this little page called the Dawson owners club go back to social networking that we don't do um but but we also try and let them on the newsletter know when sort of certain offers are coming up or if we're going to do something in secret or there's going to be a little pop up um so yeah we like to we like to keep in touch with our little family that we've got running. And often yeah, it's that's... really nice because, we, we, you know, we got an email the other day from a guy who bought one of the first pairs of jeans that we'd ever had and, like, sent them in for a, for a little repair. Yeah. So it's nice to see things coming back and because seeing we num- how, we how we've changed repair. them or how they've tweaked or, yeah. yeah.
0: but That sounds like very successful community building where it's – your friends are your customers and, and so forth. And I mean, it's, it's sort of moving a bit back to the old sort of village where you had the one jeans supplier in the village and everyone bought their jeans from that person. And Yeah. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I think be good at what you do. Yeah. You know, just, just be good at it and don't fib. <laughs> no.
0: I think also the fact that you're inviting customers into your studio, into your workshop because once you have an understanding of how many yards of denim go into a pair of jeans, and how many hours, how many machines, that it's actual people paying rent, I mean, you do realise that maybe they aren't that expensive.
1: No, they're good value, I think. And also, we worked out, I had one pair of jeans that I wore for around three years, and I wore them almost every day apart from when I washed them. And I think it worked out about twenty three p aware, which and then
0: you can start thinking those high no. street jeans i mean one, how can they make them that cheap, which mm-hmm. should raise lots of red flags, and then sort of how long do they last, and what do they contain, and all the other questions,
1: yeah, I mean you know i'm not i'm not I'm not really gonna bash people for doing it because we all have to yeah, we live and do yeah. it. we're not all in the same. And we don't all put the same amount of importance on things, but I think if we can do something to help, then we will. And um, yeah, so I think our jeans really stand up in terms of the amount of time that you can wear them, and yeah, the durability and the make the make quality
2: is um, paramount as well.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: You almost sound like you're getting a bit down on yourself now. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm just thinking
1: of all those £20 jeans. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit depressing.
0: So, uh, I mean, part of what that industry does is to put the blame on the consumers, isn't it? When it's really yeah, the makers it, it, who are at fault.
1: Yeah, yeah it is. So and it's easy as a fair. consumer
0: to be depressed about what's available and how shit it is. But really,
1: it's not. No, yeah, It's down to them, really. They need to be doing mm. more. But, yeah, so we do everything here. We yeah. cut our patterns by hand. That's that all the pattern cutting is done by us. All the fits are done by us. If I tell you that the first pair of jeans that we ever made were our regular fit jeans, and we made 11 samples before we were happy with it, making 5 millimeter tweaks here and 2 millimeter tweaks there yeah. before we were happy with it. So, um, yeah, it's a good job we like that fitting process. <laughs>
0: I We're do have a question there, um, and it might sound a bit cheeky, but I often see people talking about perfecting a fit, and I often wonder, is that a fit for a specific body, or is it a fit in general, given how different all our bodies are?
1: Yeah, that's difficult. Yeah. Um, and I would say that's our biggest battle, is being able to offer – I would say that each pair of our – each fit of our genes offers an answer for different body shapes so one fit for example our, our wide fit tends to suit a medium weight man um the wide taper tends to suit a larger man you know the slim fit suits a slimmer guy um so We always tell people when they come here, be open-minded. Just whatever you think you've come in for might not be the thing that you leave with. And we tend to try and get people to try on a whole host of different fits before they find the one that suits them best. But generally, in terms of fitting, you follow industry standards in terms of measurements. And then, you know, you rope in a guy that sort of measures your basic industry standards and the guy that you think most looks like your your regular customer and then you try them on him and you say okay I need to change this here and add this here and actually that isn't working for most people and sometimes when you have a fit and you put it to market and you have 10 customers come in and you have the same issue with each of those 10 customers you know that you need to go back to that fit and perfect it and tweak it and make it answer that question for more people yeah so i think that's probably what it can
2: be quite difficult i mean things like sleeve lengths you get a bigger guy who's five foot five with a with a 45 uh, 46 chest the sleeves are too long Mm. you get a guy who's six foot four but he's actually you know 11 stone in weight the sleeves will fit but the body's too big and, um, yeah, it, it, you you can't suit everyone. <laughs> it's just impossible. Otherwise, you're not doing bespoke service, which we just simply can't afford to do uh, because you'd have to charge so much money per garment, it would be unfeasible.
1: But what we do do is a free hemming service. Yeah. So <laughs> we cut all of our jeans super long. So when you get them, you can roll them up, send them back to us, and we'll hem them for you so you get the right length. So that... That tends to answer most of the questions. It alleviates
2: the James problem,
1: yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Now, I was utterly fascinated, Scott, by how far ahead you were of the curve in your young days. I mean, you were 13, 40, <laughs> 13, 40 years ahead of the curve on cosplaying.
1: Or behind, oh, yeah. as the case may be. Or
0: behind, ball, possibly. You were not of your time, certainly. Where are you at today? Um,
2: you know what? I'm taking great comfort in middle age. <laughs> uh. Yeah. That, that's, what, that's where I'm at. It's, it's funny because you can pick and choose which era because you've invariably gone through it in some kind of uh, revised state. Anyway. Um,
1: can yeah. I say this scott has got an eclectic wardrobe so <laughs> So whatever he decides to wake up in the day is generally something in his wardrobe that will answer that problem for him. And also, if he hasn't got it in the wardrobe, generally what he will do is come into work and say, mm, you know that standard fit jean, I think we need to relaunch it taking 1.5 centimetres off the hem because I really think that that's what our customer needs. So um, generally, Scott has got a lot of clothes. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, um, combination of eras.
2: But I, I've got to the point kind now, of... I, I'm, I'm doing it for myself because I'm comfor- comfortable with my, in my own skin at this age. Um, you know, if I was doing this brand and I was in my twenties, I'd have anxiety about pleasing people and trying to make a garment to please people, I'm sure. But I'm beyond that now. Um, So, yeah, that's where we're at. That's where I'm at.
1: Before we started this business and when I first met Scott, Scott liked to have um, tailor-made clothes and um, trousers could be quite wild. So they may have a million different belt loops. They might be slim. They might be low-rise. They might be high-rise. But you absolutely enjoyed going to a tailor's and giving bespoke details to have things made. So it's never anything standard, I don't think.
2: No, because I'm really skinny. Yeah. So nothing ever fitted me anyway.
1: That's also true.
0: I was enjoying the dreamy look on Scott's face. That was <laughs> thinking oh,
2: those trousers,
1: oh, yes. Do you remember those trousers? <laughs> do I still have tables? them? I think you do.
2: Unfortunately, my son's going to inherit all this junk. Uh, yeah.
0: So when will you be doing the sort of Adamant-inspired uh, look?
2: Well, you know what? It did cross my mind with Vivian Westwood passing away a few months ago. It did, uh, yeah, really light that fire. Not, not in a take that way, though. Yeah.
1: No. <laughs> Vivian Westwood, brilliant. Yes. Maybe. <laughs> Some plus fours.
2: Yeah. Well, no, that's the haircut 100 uh, look that Hair I did as well. 100. Yeah, I did do that look for a bit. Baron sweaters and plus fours and... <laughs> Yeah.
1: We can see the hours. Oh, God. So. Part.
0: Yeah, I did that for a bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, nice.
0: Uh, this sounds uh, so blissful. <laughs> 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 I mean, th- there's been s- there's been so much talk about sustainability and greenwashing environment and all this, and ba- clothes are bad, bad, bad. And I've been sort of wanting to sort of regain a bit of the joy of clothes. of finding something positive again yeah and, and let's can, play this is up. what I'm hearing yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> come on in let's try some stuff on let's have a bit of fun yeah that's, exactly that's what it should be when you're buying a pair of clothes it shouldn't really you know it's a luxury it is a luxury and it should be fun and lovely and yeah. it should come with nice packaging and yeah yeah you know nice swing tickets and a good back pocket rider yeah all yeah. those nice things yeah you know and it should be numbered and cared for <laughs> And is it
0: allowed to have a large collection of clothes, or are you then a hoarder and, by definition, evil and mad?
1: Depends what you love, isn't it? Yeah, doesn't it depends on what it you love? It
2: depends if mentally if it's if it's driving you mad, um, and creating depression and anxiety over you've got over too much stuff. Just for the buying things for the wrong reason to keep up with the Joneses, then that's a problem. Um, And that, you know, that happens all the time, particularly with men, men that I know, whether it was records, whether it was whatever, they had to have the best. Um, And it was just a big competition to the point where I don't think they even liked the music, whatever they were buying. It just happened to be the coolest thing at that point. Um, Yeah, that's dangerous. That certainly is dangerous. And I guess it happens with watches, watch collectors and, you know, whatever it is. That's dangerous territory.
1: I think ultimately there is no better feeling, is there, than trying something on somewhere, putting it on and feeling great. You know, that feeling when you're like walking down the street, you've got your brand new jeans on, your favourite shoes. Yeah. It's a great feeling. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you've earned it. Yeah. You know, you've invested in something, you wanted it, you've bought it and you've earned it.
0: And it will last you a while so it's yeah you, yeah you can enjoy it without any bad feelings
1: a little bit of joy
0: now we're coming up to an hour and a half i'll edit out this bit is there anything we haven't mentioned that we should uh i don't think so oh we are doing a pop-up
2: in london but a promotion uh on in april april the 15th and 16th i think it is in cold drops yard king's cross we're going to launch our, our new collection,
1: collection there.
2: It's coming out then. So get on down there, folks. It's the same weekend as the classic car boot sale, which is on on our doorstep as well in London. So that's another reason to go. It's
1: going to be a fun weekend. Yeah.
0: Bit of cheap publicity yep. there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's almost as good as a newsletter. <laughs> there go. OK, Kelly and Scott, this was absolutely wonderful. And uh, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Thank you, Nick.
1: Thanks for having us. It's been such a pleasure.
2: Yeah, thank you very much for having us, Nick. And bye-bye for now.
1: Bye, Nick. Bye. See you. Bye.
0: And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest. Just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.